0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. In this episode, I'm joined by Melina Palmer. Melina is the founder and CEO of The Brainy Business, which provides behavioral economics consulting to businesses of all sizes from around the world. Her podcast, The Brainy Business, Understanding the Psychology of Why People Buy, has downloads in over 170 countries and is used as a resource for teaching applied behavioral economics for many universities and businesses. Melina is somebody that I have wanted to have on the show for a long time. I've been a listener of her podcast and have always found it insightful and helpful. She has a new book coming out called What Employees Need and Can't Tell You. And in this conversation, we talk a lot about the basics of behavioral economics, what they are, how companies can be using them. And then we get into her book and talk about how companies can really be thinking internally about using behavior science, behavior economics to one, create better experiences, and two, create better outcomes, and three, drive better performance for and by your people. If you are interested in this conversation, Melina has offered the first chapter of her new book for free. If you go to thebrainybusiness.com backslash people business, and we will link to that in the show notes, as well as everything else we talk about, as we always do. Melina was a fantastic guest. She had a ton to share. I hope you enjoy it. Here is Melina Palmer. Melina Palmer, the Melina Palmer. Welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I get a V. How exciting.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, I am a fan of your podcast and the work that you are doing. So you get a V in front of it because uh, I think I had stalked you and said, "Hey, I love what you're doing. Would love to have you on my show." And you said, "Well, lo and behold, I have a book coming out, and would love to talk about it." Said,
1: hey, so good news. <laughs> here we are. Yes.
0: And you've been very gracious. So I'm very excited for this conversation. As I've mentioned several times, I'm an amateur behavioral economics nerd, and so any of these topics are really fun for me. You had mentioned in the beginning, kind of when you were starting your business, how hard it could be to pitch this concept to businesses because they didn't even really know what it was. I think it's gaining more traction now, but you know, it's still something that people can't really get their arms around. So, would love to start this out. What is behavioral economics and how did you come to be doing this work?
1: Sure. So uh, behavioral economics is essentially the psychology of why people buy. For me, I go beyond that to say it's why people act, choose, change and buy. So how we can... When we're thinking about things like change, even if we're not exchanging money, you need someone to buy in on whatever idea you're selling them. So I actually use the same framework for change as I do for pricing. But essentially, it's understanding how the brain makes decisions. And then I help people to work with those natural rules of the brain to make all communication easier, whether that's internally with employees and teams, or with customers, or really any one in between. So that's the the what it is. I can jump right into I guess how I found uh, the field based on the that cool. So my undergrad is actually in business administration with a focus in marketing. And when I was doing that undergrad many many moons ago, there was I remember, you know, one class that had single section of one book that had this little tiny, tiny bit about buying psychology and how that worked. And I thought it was just the most amazing thing that I had ever seen. And I was very excited. And I had said, you know, someday when I go back, I'm going to go back to school. At that time, I hadn't even thought about doing a master's or anything. I said, I'm going to go, I'm going to get a master's in this. And I was very excited about it. And I spent the better part of 10 years calling universities who all said, that's not a thing that doesn't exist. Sorry for you. And so went into industry and was doing work and focused in innovation and, and different things. And I was a part of a program that is kind of like a fellowship is, would be the best way to explain it for innovation and the credit union industry. Cause that's where I was working. And uh, in part of this two-year program, they brought out some people to present to us from something called the Center for Advanced Hindsight out of Duke University, which is their behavioral economics division. And they were talking about the work they were doing and their research. And I said, ah, like, this is what I've been looking for. You know, (laughs) I've been spending a decade searching for this thing. And so... I cornered their team and made them talk to me, I'm sure, far longer than any of them wanted to and found myself a master's program in behavioral economics and uh, jumped right in on that. What I found, like I said, I knew I was early-ish because I had spent 10 years looking for the right program, but I was really surprised at just how early, I guess, there was almost nothing out in the world about the stuff that came so clear to me about how you can use this information in communication and pricing and brand strategy and and all these things for business really just didn't exist anywhere. And so in that embracing the Seahawks mentality of why not us, said, why not me? And ended up starting a podcast, which was the first of its kind in the world and has had hundreds of thousands of people from around the world and over 170 countries find it as they're searching for more information on behavioral science and how to apply it into business. So that's a a little bit about me and the brainy business.
0: And I was going to say that podcast is brainy business and we'll link to that in the show notes. So it sounds like you kind of saw it and immediately like, saw the application, like the the image was clear, you were able to pull back the curtain and be like, oh, wow, this is really relevant.
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's something that I'm, I'm a firm believer in that everything happens for a reason, philosophy of life. And with that, I think uh, if I hadn't spent 10 years in industry, running a marketing department, understanding I had been a consultant previously. I worked at an advertising agency. I had started a company before I was working at this uh, credit union and running that marketing department for 6 years. If I hadn't understood all these things about business and been part of it, if I had just gone straight in and found you know, my master's program and maybe gone on for a PhD, I wouldn't have even understood all those things within a company and how that makes sense and for entrepreneurs and small business and how it's different from within an organization. So I think as with anything, it really was a blessing of being able to test some things out that then when I was doing my master's program, was able to see, oh, I didn't know why I was doing this or why it worked, but things that were you know, intuitive to me, I was then able to give a name to and say, oh, I was priming people or that's where I was using an anchor. I was framing something in the right way that it made a difference. And so just was able to learn some new things, see how some things I had been doing aligned well with brain science already, and then be able to kind of move forward from there.
0: Yeah. And and I love that. And it's something I th- I think we've talked about on this show before, and I'm, I have a guest coming up who we're going to talk a lot about this, but there's so much benefit to trying a lot of things and experiencing and learning about a lot of things. And there's no way to really like pinpoint how it's all going to come together. But if you do a lot of things that interest you, suddenly you'll find all these great connections in, in ways that you never expected. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm I am all about that. And in understanding the brain and how it associates things together, it, it definitely when you think about being innovative and looking at stuff that's in that innovation space. I'm a big fan of A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger. It is my all time favorite book. I always recommend it. So if that was a question coming up, now we're we got that out of the way early, I guess. <laughs> but in it, he talks about combinatorial thinking. And when I read this book many, many years ago, for the, it was the first time I had heard that. And it was before I got into behavioral science. And really, it sounds fancy, but it's just, you know, the way that you combine two things together as you think about them. And in saying for innovative stuff, you don't just want to connect A to B. But you'd be better off connecting A to Z or even better than that would be connecting A and 26 as we think about, you know, turning the alphabet, you know, letters into numbers. And so it's stuff that it may appear like they don't go together, but they can come together in a way. And one of my favorite examples from there is a guy who was in a bookstore uh, back when we, you know, used to go to bookstores for things and had seen, you know, they had they the tables of the most popular stuff of the time and that they would do themes. So there was one table of stuff that was like young adults, fiction, you know, vampires and werewolves and, you know, twilight, that sort of thing. And another that were Abraham Lincoln biographies. And he said, "Hmm, well, if I was to turn these into one super book and combine these two things that have nothing to do with each other into one book, what might that be? And, perhaps. People have guessed if you're listening, but he uh, ended up writing Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter from seeing that. He also wrote Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and those, you know, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, multi, multi, multi-million dollar franchise now. Uh, That's by combining two things that don't seem like they should go together, but they can. So I love that idea of innovative stuff and things that, Anything that you're doing, if you're interested in it, I think it can have value again later on.
0: Yeah. And there's so much of that, that only in hindsight, you go, of course, that makes sense. But you can't see it at the time unless you're playing around in all of these different things and and playing with these different ideas and combinations.
1: For sure. I'm all about relationship building in in business and everything else. I, I often say that business is a long game, right? So it's best to be thoughtful, which, you know, from listening to the show, I end every episode by saying to be thoughtful. And that's my email signature as well. But just to be kind and generous and thoughtful with the world and things will come back to you eventually if, you know, give first and and you never know where, you know, somebody who knew someone who knew someone who recommended you because you were nice. That's reciprocity works well for us.
0: Yes, preaching to the choir, all right. let's get back on the behavioral economics train here. How do you see companies using behavior economics today, and like where do companies start with this stuff? and like how much more runway do we have if Is there a lot of adoption for this? Are we still no adoption for this where Where are we in the the adoption curve?
1: Yeah, it's still pretty early. But- and, and ramping up very quickly is what I would say with that. So when I first started the podcast, I set up, uh, you know, Google term, right? So if uh, anybody, if there's new articles or things with behavioral economics, that'll send me send me an alert. Google alerts. That's what I was looking for. Uh, of an Alert. So you know, four and a half years ago, and would get one hit every few days, right? It would potentially go a week without having anything pop up. And now I get 5-10 articles a day of stuff on behavioral economics. So it's definitely gaining a lot of traction. And you're starting to see companies like Apple and Walmart and Uber, Netflix, uh, that they're building in-house teams that are doing a lot with applying behavioral economics into their work. And I would say... The majority of what you see in the space where it used to be very academic, now you have some in business, uh, is really customer focused. And looking at, uh, often people will say that that's a CX type of, that's just a a little thing under the CX umbrella. And have thought about behavioral economics, behavioral science as more of a, a tool that you can use from time to time. Versus, there's a guy, Michael Hallsworth, who was recently on my podcast and was talking about, it's time to look at behavioral economics and behavioral science as a lens. Instead of a tool. So, something that we use throughout everything that we're considering behavior, because truly the person on the other side of whatever you're doing, whether you're trying to sell ideas internally or you're trying to sell products to people, it's still a person needing to make a decision and you're still working with those human brains. So, there's a lot less on that human behavior inside of organizations that behavioral science is being applied to, which is why. My book, What Your Employees Need and Can't Tell You, was really important to me to be coming out now because it is really important while companies are looking at bias, they're trying to understand how our brains are impacting our interactions with people. So while organizations are really looking at reducing bias, I think what you end up with is a lot of people trying to be completely unbiased within an organization, looking to eliminate it. But our brains actually run on a bi- on bias for most everything that they do. So it, that's not an achievable goal. Within my book and some of what you're starting to see in the industry is applying this understanding of the brain so that we can use that as a filter or a lens for everything that we're doing to be able to just communicate more effectively with other people, understanding both how... Our behavior is impacted by the way that our brains work as well as the way that uh, then we're presenting information, how others are receiving it and being able to just communicate more
0: effectively. I love that. I love the idea of looking at it as a lens rather than as a tool. One other topic that we've talked about on here and I've done a couple episodes on is design thinking or human-centered design. And a lot of human-centered design uses behavioral economics principles how how do you think about those two are they you know are they related are they versions of the same thing like how how would leaders be thinking about using one lens versus the other or one set of tools versus the other
1: yeah so design thinking is a different kind of type of innovative thought process and you're trying to think like a designer is is the point there, right? (laughs) And so with that, often designers are able to see something a little bit differently. They can be maybe differently, more objective. You're taking a step back as you get into, like I said, there's also this CX or UX space, which is, uh, has some similarity and overlap. Which would be
0: customer experience or user experience.
1: Yes. And so those types of processes are trying to think about what someone would do And often you then start to say, well, we should ask them, we should ask people what they want, and then we can give it to them. What behavioral economics and behavioral science has found is people often don't it's not even that they, they don't know what they will do. They don't know why they did something and can't explain it to us. And yes, we are very bad at predicting what it is that we think we are going to want into the future. And so what behavioral economics allows us to do is understand the rules that the brain uses to make decisions. And then you could use design thinking, or any other models, you know, journey mapping or whatnot, to be able to apply that into whatever project it is that you're working on. But having an awareness of some of these rules can make it so that you can be more likely to work with what the brain will actually do and what people really want instead of what they say they want or what we think people should do. So to give an example here... One of my favorite concepts is framing and that's because it's so easy to implement and do anything with. So if you imagine that you are going to the grocery store, you're making spaghetti tonight and you realized you need to go pick up some ground beef, you run in, there are two stacks almost identical right next to each other. The only difference is one is labeled as 90% fat free and the stack next to it is labeled as 10% fat. Now, which one... Do you feel like you want to buy? Which one feels more appealing to you? The fat free. Yes. <laughs> and I've given this example to thousands of people from around the world, and overwhelmingly, everyone says 90% fat free. Logically. Unless you're
0: in the paleo <laughs> CrossFit community, in which case you're looking for fats, in which case that framing.
1: Yeah. Works. Some of the, some of the, keto stuff, you need to have a, a yeah. fat percentage. But even then, you know... Not to
0: throw your story off. <laughs> no, no, totally. Yeah, sorry. But
1: even then, I also have when I've presented for in Texas, which I do a lot since I teach at Texas A&M, sometimes because, you know, there's more knowledge of beef <laughs> in Texas than in some other places. But in general, still, people
0: still yes, feel they're a choosing pull. fat-free.
1: It feels better to us. Logically, we know it's exactly the same thing. But even so, when you go to make the decision, you may have a hard time picking up that 10% fat option. It feels a little bit gross to you, right? So how you say something matters much more than what it is that you are saying. And in the case of presenting information to people, you know, it's not really about the change. It's often in the way that it's presented that makes it so change is so difficult, and people have a negative reaction to the idea of changing. You know, we change constantly all the time, but it's easier when we align with a different brain rule to work with that subconscious brain than to, uh, you know, try and present something that's completely new and
0: yeah, out of or force field. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So great segue it's like you do this for a living. So you, you have the new book, what your employees need and can't tell you. And a lot of that is framed around change. I mean, that's kind of the lens through which you're looking at the problem of what your employees need and can't tell you. Why did you base that on change?
1: Yeah. So really it's because companies are having to change constantly. And we're asking our employees to be taking on changes of varying sizes all day, every day, right? It's this sort of adapt or die space as technology is changing and someone else is innovating and we're having to try new systems and there's new social channels all the time, right? There's always something new that we're having to learn and deal with. And I wrote this in the midst of a global pandemic where everyone had to adapt and be working from home when people said they couldn't possibly do that, right? That we couldn't do it, and then everyone managed to do it in a week <laughs> when when push came to shove, and we had to to make that change. And so in the case of business and having effective teams, full of people who are happy and passionate about the work that we're doing, the way that we present information makes a difference. And knowing that if we focus on these change situations, which I would argue that every conversation is a change conversation, we're either in the wake of a change that has recently happened, we're in the middle of something, or we're prepping and priming for an upcoming change where we're going to need that uh, kind of emotional bank account down the line. And so if you're thinking about it in that way and in that same long relationship space helps to just focus on that one thing as a main approach to having a more engaged and happy workforce.
0: Yeah. And I think it's easy to think about change like this in the workplace and go like, well, my work hasn't changed that much, you know, like, I mean, maybe pandemic excluded, right. But you know, what, still doing kind of the same job and that kind of stuff but even little things you know like i got a new client or a client has asked for this new service that we don't really provide or they asked me to do it in a different way or we hired a new person and now we have to train them and i have to learn how to work with them i as i was reading it initially even i went oh well like how relevant is this day to day talking about big change and then i was like oh no okay i get that. like it it really is everything is a change every new person every new client every new interaction every new every new ask is some kind of a change conversation
1: yeah absolutely and i i love how you put that so thank you and truthfully so I mean, when we look at the brain stuff too and we think about decisions right so this is stuff that comes up early on in the book as well i always start my books with the about the brain and then some of these concepts and then how to combine them all together. So if you were to think, you know, how many decisions do I make in an average day? Me as a person, listener, as you think about it, just take take a moment and say, how many decisions do you make from one day to the next? Maybe you think 25 or 500, or maybe you're going to go crazy and say it's 5,000 decisions, you know? research shows actually that the average person makes 35,000 decisions every single day, all of us. And those micro decisions are where we need to be focusing. I talk about it as snowflakes, either having to come together to be that snowball rolling down the hill, or you have this sort of tundra of past snowflakes that you're having to kind of battle against. But the brain works in those micro moments. Those micro decisions are really what you want to be focusing on those little things where it seems like it shouldn't make a difference. Like the way that you label the ground beef shouldn't matter. And it does. It absolutely does. The way that you present information at work, you may say they should know people are smart. They've got this you know, computer in their heads and they're able to go do all the research and dig through all the data I'm giving them. They should be able to figure that out but they don't. (laughs) It's just not how it works. So when you look at those decisions, it changes not just in big mergers or huge swaps over to a new system or a rebrand or something. It really is all those little things. Moving desks is an example I always like to use because it's something that upends a lot of habits and our brains run on habit and that can make it so we're less effective and our brains more likely to rely on our status quo bias when we lose some of our most basic and simple habits. It can impact our adaptability and likelihood to want to change when when those get
0: shifted without thoughtfulness. I was talking to somebody maybe three or four weeks into the pandemic or it might have even been a little bit longer than that, maybe a month or two. And they were, we were talking about how everybody seemed to be struggling with their routines in the new virtual environment. And the person pointed out, well, the reason is because nobody has established habits for what we're doing right now. We all had these habits for how we were working before. And everybody's brain is having to work overdrive and put actual conscious effort into much more now than it had to just three months ago. And that's why everybody was feeling exhausted at the end of the day, early on in the pandemic. And and we're seeing the same thing now as people have come out of the pandemic and gone back into work. And everybody's now had these habits for two years that they've built up. And we think, oh, well, we're just going back. But the reality is that some of those habits have been fatigued. And now our brain is having to work even harder. And it feels weird to go back and socialize with people.
1: Yes, absolutely. One of my clients had called it the COVID blahs, where you say, I, I don't understand. Like I was getting up and I was going to the gym and I had a long commute and I was working all day. And then I was going out after work and I was fine. And now it's two o'clock and I'm at home in my pajama pants and I feel exhausted. What's going on? And yes, those little things of where you put your coffee cup on your desk, where you can go to fill up coffee, the route that you go to use the restroom or get a glass of water, how you go to work, all of those things are built on habit. And vast, vast majority of our brain is making decisions using the subconscious brain on habit. Some studies say as much as 99.999% I've seen, but even, you know, More accepted is probably in that like 95% realm because there's still a lot to learn about the brain, right? As far as where that goes. But so much is done on habit and we want to work with those habits in the way that we think about things. And again, if we use that example of moving your desk. So if you ask people to move their desks, you don't want to then pile on a bunch of other changes and you want to be aware that this is a, a point where, you know, for a couple of weeks, Someone's going to be more cognitively burdened by this new thing or a new system that they're using or a new employee that they're having to train like you were talking about. All these things that could be coming up and they may make mistakes in other areas. They may be stressed. They may find it hard to take on new initiatives and remember things that they were supposed to be doing because of this little uh, bandwidth issue, right? From something that seems like it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Similarly, if you are going through a merger or some other big change, it's not the time to be sprinkling in a bunch of other changes if you can wait to move desks or to update processes and procedures. And you just want to give grace to any of those things. Even something as simple as Uh, you know, construction outside the building that makes it so people have to take a slightly different route to work can make it so they're going to be a little bit less effective. And if you go in knowing that you expect that error and are able to build a plan around it. So, you know, everybody has to wait and reread their emails an hour later before they get sent to see if there are typos or something. It can just help to... Make it so that that change isn't going to be problematic in these kind of ripples all the way through their life and their work.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about those little deviations changing our performance and and hurting our cognitive abilities.
1: Yeah, we would like to think that that's not us. And so as some of the biases that come into play, our brains are all biased to think that we're better, faster, stronger, smarter, and less biased than everyone else, including the us of five minutes ago. And so even where I'm saying this to you, you're hearing it and I'm saying everyone has these problems. Your brain is still thinking, oh yeah, but that's them. Right. But I don't, I don't do that. People do that, but not me. Right.
0: Yeah. No, I know and I do he, it, but like not that much. Like I'm not right. as bad as everybody else. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Not like that guy over there or whatever, right? But sorry, <laughs> we all are. And even even now where I said, no, truly you are, do you believe it? Do you believe it yet? No, maybe not. So this is the problem. I right? was I
0: so I think about this stuff all the time. And I've I've read plenty of articles that like this. So like conceptually, I get it but I still have the voice in my head that's like, yeah, but you're a little bit better.
1: <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> and the thing to note is we are all biased. Like I said, our brains run on biases and heuristics to make decisions is when we think about how our brains work, we have the subconscious, which I've talked about a little bit, our conscious brain. And that subconscious is fast, automatic decision-making, and it likes to run the show as much as it can, because again, it's fast and automatic and able to use rules of things that have worked in the past to make decisions for our reality and what we're going to be doing in the next moments. The conscious brain is slower. It is a lot more having to be thoughtful, looking at logic, and it it doesn't have the same sorts of rules, even though it's still kind of based on subconscious stuff. But that subconscious is like a gatekeeper or a receptionist. If you're trying to get a meeting with the busy executive, it's constantly scanning the world for all the things that it can keep saying, I have a rule for that. I know how to do this. I know how to do that. I know what's coming next. And just like that framing of the 90% fat free versus 10% fat, that's a rule that the brain would use to say, oh, I prefer this over something else, right? And so when we look at decisions in the workplace, and think about I like to talk a lot about confirmation bias as a spot here, so when we go into meetings and I have students, clients, you know will come to me when I'm teaching about change management and understanding communication at work, we'll say, "Oh my gosh, I get it. I realize now, I know what I need to do, and there's this person on my team that is totally biased and What can I be doing to prove to them that they need to, you know, get on board? How can I show them that they're biased? So (laughs) say you actually need to look at you first, right? Because if you're going in and saying, Oh man, Susie is so difficult to work with, she is gonna be looking for any way to get, you know, get out of this. She's not a team player your brain has a focusing illusion on finding stuff that's going to confirm that for you. If you go into this conversation looking for a way to win and prove to someone else that they are wrong, it's almost never going to work out very well for you. And on the flip side, they're coming in and saying, Melina hates me. (laughs) She never listens to what I have to say, on and on, and is then focusing on all the bad things, and we're constantly going to be on polar opposite sides. When we think about the processing of the subconscious brain, if you were to compare it to a computer, it can do approximately 11 million bits per second of processing compared to the conscious brain, which can do about 40. So going back to the, the problem we have here of the subconscious trying to do so much, when we look at something like confirmation bias and conflicts at work, and we're trying to prove how we are right and you are wrong what we're thinking is there's only one right answer, but actually we can both be right even if we're saying completely different things. And so reframing our 11 million to 40 I was just talking about would be to say for every one thing that your brain let through to say, hey, like this is what's correct. This is what we were looking for. There were 275,000 other things that your brain filtered out as being not as important, right? Is it possible that their brain Filtered for one of the other 275,000 things that is also true. And yes, <laughs> yes, that's very possible, right? Cheat sheet. Yes is the answer. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. I solved this for you. And so in that case, If we go in and we are more open to understanding what it is that people are sharing, this is where, you know, attentive listening, not going in and trying to win can help to make it so that it's easier to have a conversation. And if the other person can feel that we don't have this confirmation bias against them, we're open to listen, looking for the benefits of that meeting, how we can come out in a better space other than to win it. It definitely can make a huge difference in people being more agreeable and working with you and being more adaptive to change when they're not on edge and ready to fight all the time.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll even go one further than that, because we talk about this type of thing in a leadership development program that I'm in, and we talk about how you're not allowed to challenge somebody if you don't believe in them. And so it's not just that I'm neutral about them, but you actually have to have belief in that person. And that it's that framing in your mind that then allows you to come to collaborative outcomes. And I it makes me think of, I think it was Freakonomics that talked about the study of teachers and how they treat their students. And they took a whole group of teachers... they took a whole group of students, tested all the students, and then told the teachers which ones were gifted and which ones were not. And then at the end of the year, they looked at the report cards. Lo and behold, all of the gifted students had outperformed. All of the average students had underperformed or or been about average. The trick was that all the answers were randomized. So, the gifted students weren't necessarily gifted and the non-gifted students weren't necessarily average. It was just all random. It was that the teachers had treated them differently and had expected different things out of them. And then so that's what they got. You know, They got, again, confirmation bias. They got what they were looking for. And that, that study stuck with me just to the power that our own brains can have in dictating the outcomes for other people. And I think as leaders, as, as a spouse, as a parent... As a business leader, like I think about that all the time, and it it worries me you know it's something that i 'm trying to pay attention to like do I believe that my wife can overcome this hurdle, or do I not because that's gonna that's going to create a different outcome so I, I, that one I think is just critically important I'm glad you brought that up
1: yeah and and i do I love that study too, and it's something that didn't i don't think it made it into the book but in a revised version down the line, maybe that has uh it definitely has
0: a spot in there.
1: But really I think it's maybe I, I
0: could be sourcing that in the wrong place. Oh
1: no no. It it might be I, I think it is in free economics. I'm saying it's not in my book, but it, it's oh, one okay. that would have very well fit in to to the book itself. Of course, as I'm sure anyone who's written a book that's listening or even from reading books, you know, there are a million and five things I wanted to put in there, and there's lots on the editing room floor, right? That didn't get to make it. Uh, brevity's not really my friend, which potentially you're you're hearing in the my long winded answers here as we're chatting. Um, That's why
0: we do this long form.
1: The thing about that study, though, that I think is important now. So it's something where people might hear that, and you can either hear that and think, "Oh man, like I, how am I biased in everything that I'm doing and pushing people down?" unintentionally, right? What am I doing wrong? And you can get kind of uh, in your own way, in your own head about trying to avoid that. So if you then reframe this as a positive thing in your own space to say, anyone can be lifted up if I think about them and approach this conversation differently. So instead of going and saying, oh, man... Steve's a problem. Everybody's told me that Steve is a problem. And now Steve's on my team and yikes, I know this is going to be a problem. You can be looking in for opportunities to find how Steve is a benefit and an asset on the team. So instead of saying, oh, he's so hard. He always is asking questions. It's challenging me, right? As we've learned in school of having, asking questions means you're challenging authority or something, but questions aren't, aren't bad. Uh, I I'm a big fan of questions myself. And so if you reframe that to say, he's, he's thoughtful, he's wanting to make sure that we're on the right path and is uh, trying to identify opportunities and how we can learn from that, whatever it is in the same, same way, just that there are opportunities in the way that you filter yourself. We are biased against people that we say are not, like us or of us in whatever classification that may be. It can be gender or job role, so many things. And so if you expand then your circles of empathy, another opportunity for business is just don't pit departments against each other. Try to avoid that as much as you can. There's some when you have a really great corporate culture that you can have a little bit of fun kind of camaraderie between teams. But you want to avoid having it be so, you know, when sales wins, finance loses or or customer service loses or whatever that is, and having any of these where you say, oh, well, that's them. They do that, they're bad, and we're good. Instead, if you can be team company, you can make it so everybody sees everyone else as part of their greater self and are more likely to fight and advocate for those like them instead of those who are like the other.
0: That's a good point. And it makes me think about how we get to tell ourselves the stories we want to tell ourselves and we get to choose which teams we're on in, in a lot of ways, some ways you can't, but in in a lot of ways we can. And the broader team we decide to join, the more people are on our side and the more people we can work and collaborate with.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And the more that we're able to do and achieve, and just like any risk tolerance in a portfolio, you know your investments are going to do better when they're diversified. It's the same thing with teams, right? And, and we know that. You've heard people say that before. So being able to then look for and embrace that diversity and know that those differing opinions, again, if somebody's saying something and you say, well, that's obviously wrong, is instead to say, you know, oh, I didn't see that. Tell me more about that, right? To overcome your own initial reaction of why your idea is the best idea and say, well, it's one of many possibilities and you want to be able to learn a little bit more and appreciate that diversity of opinion and background that can help you to identify problems or or look for opportunities or whatever happens to be.
0: What do you see as the most common mistakes that employers are making when it comes to helping employees through changes, large or small?
1: I would say that it's it's actually a little bit further back. And I would say it's company-wide uh, and <laughs> worldwide, just sort of the way we're really structured in a lot of ways, is by not being thoughtful enough up front, being more reactive than we are proactive and while I think there's a lot of value in the technology that we have, it allows us to communicate, you know, we're doing this interview from very far away from each other uh, and being able to have, whether it's teams or Slack or anything else, so we could be communicating is really valuable. And when we have the ability to just send a message really quick, I'm just going to do this really quick. We end up not thinking enough about, long-term next steps and all of what we're asking someone to do or say. We have miscommunications. Research has found that over 50% of what people send in email is misinterpreted or misunderstood. So over half of what you're sending in your email, people don't understand what it is. And then you have clarifying conversations about that, right? So if you were to take a little bit more time to think about what it is that you're asking someone to do, why you want them to do it. Not just the, this popped into my head right now and I'm going to send it, (laughs) but to say, hmm, I need to send an email to Melina and these are the projects that are going on. These are the things I might be seeing that I might need to ask. This is how they go together. This is why it matters to me. Being able to explain. You know, spending a little bit more time up front can remove tons of hours of re discussing what was supposed to happen, what you meant yeah. here, you know, uh, repairing. With, yes. D- yeah. In the worst uh, case scenario. Yes. And just saying, Oh, was it, was that in central time or Pacific time, you know? And, Oh, did you mean this, or do you want to send the meeting invite? Or do you want me to send the meeting invite? Like all these little things that we can just have a process that can make things more efficient and effective. And and if we're looking more so, also, we when we have too many competing deadlines, too many projects, we aren't well identified in what it is we're doing and why it's important. We're trying to do too many things at once. We have a lot of excess time pressure, which creates stress on the brain and even though I'm sure everyone listening has said at one time or another that they work better under a deadline, it's not true. <laughs> we don't. Science has shown we're less creative and we're more likely to rely on our status quo instead of looking for new opportunities when we feel that stress. And so having more time to do the right things instead of being stretched too thin, I think is a way to help make it so that employees are more likely to react well to changes when they come and uh, be more innovative in the work that they're already doing.
0: So I thought you were going to say multitasking. I thought you were going to say everybody thinks they're good at multitasking. And I think now we're getting to a spot where most people understand that we're not good at multitasking and that we're we're best at doing one task and then another task and all multitasking really is is doing one task and then another just doing it really really quickly shifting back and forth. But I like your comment about deadlines too. I think that one sort of caught me off guard and as as I heard you say it, I thought, oh, yeah, that does make sense. I, I guess I have heard that before, but that one's not as automatic.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the multitasking thing, even though we've all heard that everyone else is really bad at multitasking, we like to think that we're the exception to that rule. Right.
0: Yes. <laughs> so, again, you're not special.
1: Right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I said to um, me,
0: I, I'm not special. I'm saying that in my own head.
1: Uh, yeah. We're we're all in the same boat, but it, it does create that same time pressure and our, our brains are not good at transitioning between tasks in a way that we would like to think that they are. So being able to focus on again the right things. It's it's cut from the same cloth in in what I was saying for sure.
0: Yeah. Do you see companies, the successful ones who are helping their people through change whose people feel like they have balance who feel engaged in their work are they helping them create better habits and rituals and routines in some way because if if we're processing whatever it is 11 was it 11 million if we're processing 11 million bits per second on the one end and 40 on the other end it would seem like the better organizations are the ones who have people who are automatically doing the productive things that they need to be doing. Do you see companies or leaders, even individual leaders, helping people do that in any specific or material way?
1: I think that the the best of what you're seeing around is... And uh, you know, going back to where you're asking about how some companies are applying behavioral science into the work that they're doing is... When you understand those brain processes and you're able to look out onto the horizon and be able to see where people might make a mistake or where they might get hung up or how you can help nudge them along. In behavioral science, we work in nudges. There's a really great book called Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Thaler won a Nobel Prize for that work. Oh, is it on the shelf over there?
0: I think it's Mm. somewhere behind me. Yeah, somewhere (laughs) Uh, up in here.
1: Yes, I bet. Really, really great. And nudges is an acronym for the six different types uh, of nudges there. I won't talk about all of them. But to focus on the E and the G is expect error and give feedback. So one of the things I see in organizations that are doing this wrong, we'll say that may be a bit extreme, but who are not approaching this in the best way possible would be that you have managers or other pe- team leads or whatever it happens to be looking out and saying, Oh, I, I know they're going to miss this deadline and I'm just going to sit back and wait and let them learn on their own that this is going to be probably, like, you see the problem on the horizon and you're just waiting for them to make the mistake to, you know, prove a point or something, right? But if you know that there's a likelihood of a problem and you can give a little feedback nudge to help it not be a problem, that shouldn't be something that we shy away from or that we think is, you know, helping to lift up people that should be sinking to the bottom or something because our brains are busy. They have so much going on. We make little mistakes. This is why as an example of an expect error and give feedback nudge loop would be when you're driving your car, if you forget to buckle your seatbelt, it will ding at you. It makes a noise to alert you that something is wrong. Something you likely wanted to do has not been done and it's notifying you so you can make a change. Anyone who doesn't want to buckle their seatbelt for whatever reason doesn't have to, it's not forcing you to do it. It's not like the car won't drive without that being buckled in, but that's that the manufacturer thought in advance, you will potentially want this. This is probably something you want to be safe. And so we're going to have this alert if you ever make a misstep, right? This is also why you now have to take your, Card out of the ATM before you get your cash. This is why there's the little plastic thing that connects the gas cap to the car so you can't lose it and leave it on the top of your car like a lot of people did for a long time. These are all points where someone thought, I bet that I see this mistake. Here's how we can fix it and make it so there's not going to be a problem. You can't, though, have it so everything in your car is beeping and having flashing lights because we would start to ignore everything. You just have to focus on the right stuff. So if you know there's a deadline coming up on Friday and you need the thing by Friday and you bet people are getting bogged down because there was something else that was happening, sending the email on Wednesday at noon says, Hey, just want to make sure that this is coming up. Is there anything? And if there's anything I can do to support you, please let me know. That's, that's a good way that we can help someone be on track and avoid the mistake before it comes understanding that human behavior instead of, you know, waiting and watching for people to mess up. That's just not helpful for anyone.
0: Yeah. That's just better project management, right? You're just encouraging, you're just building it into whatever the project management plan is the little nudges, the little reminders. Yeah, definitely. One final comment on change or question on change. I, in the book, you've got one chapter that says, "Change is all about you," immediately followed by a chapter that says, "And it's not about you." <laughs> yeah. can you explain the, those two chapters and, and why you've set that up that way?
1: Yeah, and so and I think it's even dot dot dot, and it has nothing to do with you right? <laughs> the t- which my publisher you know said like we're, we're starting a chapter with a dot dot dot. Yes, definitely. I feel good about it.
0: (laughs) Is there a rule against that? Yeah, Yeah, you know,
1: I love breaking rules, right? So, and I say that and no, I'm a total rule follower. So uh, I know this about me. (laughs) That's okay. So in this way, it's similar to when we think about change and, and saying, you know, is the problem the way people react to change or the way that the information is presented to them is something I like to ask a lot. And we now know based on the how you say something mattering more than what it is that you're saying with that framing concept, that it really, in a lot of ways, it's how it's presented to them. And so then taking a step back and saying, you know, it has everything to do with you in that you can make a change in the way that you're presenting information to make it so it's more likely to be well-received by the other party by considering, you know, not the golden rule, but more in that platinum rule of how people would like to be treated, knowing that you can't even ask them. But so change is about you because you need to be focused on your own biases and then how you present that information. And then it has nothing to do with you because you can't be bogged down in your own stuff when you are presenting change initiatives at work. So if we think about some of these bigger things, we'll say a restructuring even. So if you... You need to be a recipient of information and know that you're going to have a reaction as a recipient that you need to then get over before you're presenting information to people around you, whether they're on your uh, team direct reports or they're people who don't report to you, uh, and how you're presenting that information. Because if you're too in it, Yourself, it's going to cause ripples that are going to make that be a negative experience all the way down the line. Uh, so, in the book, I give an example that I talk about there of you know manager who calls the team together and says something along the lines of you know and they're you know rubbing their eyes like oh hi, hey everybody like this just just came around and don't shoot the messenger here but I I've heard that, you know, I know a lot of you aren't going to like this, but we're going to have to, we're converting to a new system. I know, I know it's not me, uh, uh, but I need y'all to get on board <laughs> with this. Okay. Right. And you, I
0: laugh, but how many of us have heard somebody come at a problem like that? Yeah.
1: Right. And then you say, wow, like we've really primed our audience to think this is a terrible thing that I shouldn't like. Obviously no one else likes this. You don't even like this. And so... That person might have (laughs) can change though the way they present the information to say, you know, hey, everybody, I've heard many of you say over time that the existing system we have is not working well for you. I've heard you say that it's slow, that it's cumbersome or difficult. Great news is that the management's working on a new system. You have an opportunity to provide feedback to ensure it meets all of what it is that you need. Anyone who wants to be on the team, we have until the end of the month to apply for that and be able to help shape this new system, right? That's just one example of the (laughs) kind of process here, but thinking about the small steps. So what is it, the thing that you want people to be ultimately doing? And then what's this first micro step, what matters in this one moment, this one conversation, there's a chapter in part one, it's called big changes in micro moments or something along those lines, big steps in micro moments. I forget exactly what the titling (laughs) ended up being. But that really is in the way that we present information, needing to be thinking about
0: kind of both sides there. Have you read the book, Never Split the Difference?
1: It's been a long time since I like more flipped through it versus it's not one that I like, I've got all the stuff like here. I have a lot of those books, but uh, that's one that's less apt for me.
0: So, uh, it was written by a gentleman named Chris Voss. His business partner, Derek Gaunt, has been on the podcast. And one of the things that he really purports is what they call the accusation audit. So they actually, and this is in negotiations, they actually encourage somebody to think of all the names that somebody's going to call them and then say, you're going to not say, don't shoot the messenger, but to say, you're going to want to shoot the messenger. You're going to think, I'm trying to get you to do this really difficult thing. You're going to be upset about this. And they sort of prime everybody with this reaction. And then they argue that when you hit them with the news, they go, oh, well, that's not that bad. Just curious. Now, that could just be more of a negotiation technique. I don't know. But do you have any thoughts on that?
1: That is an application of anchoring that is something that can be effective. In the case of the negotiation, there is a lot of value in being able to say some sort of a big number and then retreating back. Uh, so it's a combination of anchoring and relativity, and it can be very effective. And even in you know salary negotiations, when people were asked in when they were applying for jobs and people said, how much do you want to make? and somebody made a joke and said, huh, a million dollars, ha, 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 ha. And then they said the number. Those people actually ended up getting paid more than the people who didn't make that joke, which is kind of bizarre. So there is a lot in that kind of give and take when you're in a single negotiation where that can be a useful tool. In the case of workplace culture and a way to be approaching all of your conversations and the way you interact with teams to be constantly having this really bad. Oh, good news it's not quite that bad doesn't sound like a a cultural approach that I think would be effective and and something that people are excited about in the long term. So I'd say that's not a a long term sort of a an ongoing tactic that I would recommend,
0: at least. Yeah. And there's obviously there's art to all of this in how you use it. And I think that's one that could get overused really quickly. But I think that is an interesting point. The way you had kind of laid your seen out was priming because you were you were sort of sharing the bad mood whereas this very specific language that they use is more about anchoring you're going to think this you're going to think that and then that anchors them there and then they come back and and move off of that so that is interesting but beware people trying that not to overuse it
1: that's even when i talk about change so like i said i have my my it's not about the cookie framework, which is in the book. And I use the same thing for pricing. One of the aspects in the framework is scarcity. And so in a pricing space, we have a lot of things with scarcity. It's an act now, today only, limit 12, whatever, right? And I say, while it can be used in the change model, it's an advanced tactic and something that can go wrong really quickly if you don't know what you're doing and you're not thoughtful enough about it. It's so It can so quickly go wrong. It's often the juice is not worth the squeeze in putting that out there. And I would say in that same tactic, while it can be very effective, it can work for people who are really trained in that space and know when to use it. The downside, if you get it wrong, I think is too high uh, on a long-term basis than the, the little benefit you might get if it really works. When, in my opinion, and from what I've seen in a lot of cases, when you're able to just have this focusing more on the future benefit and, and framing and, and shifting focus to good stuff, you just, you just don't have to use that tactic, I don't think.
0: Last couple questions what When it comes to behavioral economics, what are you sick of talking about?
1: <laughs> uh, I know I saw that on your on your list. and I feel like I never really get sick of talking about any of the of the stuff. So I think, though, if I have to come up with something, I'll say that I, I don't like talking about the the titling of behavioral science versus behavioral economics and which is which and who has to be called what and where some people would say that change stuff doesn't fall into a behavioral economics category. It's more in behavioral science and, you know, kind of say, who cares, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I admitted at the beginning of this that I'm an amateur in all this, and I do use those two pretty much interchangeable.
1: I honestly do too. And and I think and I will and there are those in the field who would disagree with me in that. And I think I, I have accepted it. In the same way where I talk about conscious and subconscious, instead of talking about system one and system two, I accept that some people then say, that's not scientifically perfectly accurate. Say, yes, I I accept that and I've made it as a conscious decision to use it this way, which I explain on the show. But yeah. Kind of the same thing. I don't think arguing about that is necessary or going to help move us forward in the way that some other things can as a, as a field. So doesn't make a difference in my opinion. I don't think it's as consequential as it could be elsewhere, but it's, it's good to, to have those lines and probably don't need to talk about it quite as much.
0: On the flip side, what are you most excited to be talking about or what aren't people talking enough about
1: (laughs) Uh, all of what we talked about today? I would say, you know, I'm very, very excited about the new book and about how behavioral economics can be applied within business to help people to have better working lives to, you know, paraphrase or, or grab from Adam grant and to help it so that work doesn't suck for everybody. And to just be more thoughtful in that space. I, I think everybody is really looking for opportunities to help make work better and I really, you know, I was I was excited about the topic when I started the book. By the time it was done, I'm it's it's so much better than I even expected that it would be in a not so humble brag, I guess, but I was just really excited about it and and what I think it can do for the world. So I'm really excited to be talking about change and behavioral science.
0: And last question, this is one I ask everybody, what in your mind is the purpose of business?
1: Mm. I think that the purpose of business is to help to people to live better lives, right? So I look for opportunities where companies can help us to be more effective, more efficient, better at the things that we do, have an easier time of it. And so I think business is there to help people live their best life.
0: The Melina Palmer. Thank you for coming on the show today. This has been fantastic. And I will link to everything we've talked about in the show notes. And I will link to your businesses and podcasts and everything as well. And I always encourage people, if you are still listening to this and you've gotten something out of this, Melina does this professionally. This is what she does. She speaks on this. She coaches on it and she works with companies to consult. So if you have a need on this uh, and think there might be problems that she could solve, I would encourage you to reach out. I think... Oftentimes it's easy to hear a podcast guest and think that they're on some behind some pearly gates that they're unattainable. But if anybody does have a need, please reach out. This is what she does professionally. So Melina, thank you so much for for being a part of the show.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.